Today is May 2nd, 2020. This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman of the We Be Imagining Podcast. Uh, it's about 1.25 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. The ethos of the We Be Imagining Podcast is centering the experience of those most profoundly impacted by technologies and our current public policy. We've recently featured a series of academics and journalists because it's important to have a broad theoretical lens and scope to understanding the issues on the front line. However, these conversations are only relevant in that they speak to the needs of the people on the margins and the most vulnerable, particularly during a pandemic. When I decided to do an episode on the impact of COVID-19 on Rikers Island, a friend put me in touch with It's Up To Us, an organization of prisoners, ex-prisoners, and their families. First, we're gonna have some words from Mike, one of the organizers, and then we're gonna talk about the story of Talbert Brown. Hi, my name is Michael Nugent. I'm with an organization called It's Up to Us to End Mass Incarceration. And can you tell me a little bit about this organization and just kind of explain, um, you know, who's participating in it and what the goals are? Sure. Uh, It's Up to Us uh, started about uh, the fall of 2018. Uh, our, Our mission was basically to, like, create a... Uh, organization of families, prisoners, and ex-prisoners uh, with the goal of ending mass incarceration once and for all. Um, basically, what we did was we started out uh, going out to the buses that leave to Rikers Island and to uh, to take families up to Rikers Island and take families upstate uh, to the you know the state prisons. Uh, we went with microphones and we went with, you know, microphone, like recorders, basically. And we went with um, a fact sheet and we began to talk to the families that were that were waiting for the buses about their treatments, uh, about how they were being treated by the prison system. You know, both, you know, both the families themselves and their loved ones inside. Basically, we see social investigation as a as a as a key component of. What we're doing, social investigation, um, in terms of being able to speak directly with the people most affected by mass incarceration, which are those three, you know, uh, the families, the prisoners, and and ex-prisoners, to talk to them about kind of what their experience is, to tell them what they feel the biggest problems are, so that we knew which struggles to launch um, and, 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 and which campaigns to launch, basically. Um, so, you know, in that time, you know, you know, also part of the interviews are about speaking, uh, speaking bitterness, basically, you know, these families and these prisoners don't really get to talk about what they go through in the mainstream media. Um, you know, you, you know, speaking bitterness is a way of kind of talking about the, the bitter kind of, you know, uh, brutal oppression that they face inside the prisons the embarrassment and the harassment that the families face when they go to visit, um, having people to speak about those things. And then like what we did, what we did is basically like publish those uh, interviews anonymously in a monthly newsletter and brought them back to the people, you know, brought them back to the families and the prisoners at the buses to kind of see that this is, that they're not alone in the situations they're fighting, you know, that they don't have to fight alone, that they're basically, they can basically uh, fight together and basically, you know, so speaking bitterness was a way of like collectivizing, gathering 
you know, gathering, you know, the stories and making people see that they're not in isolation, that there are, you know, millions of people going through this around the nation and, and, you know, 54,000 locked up in, in United States in our, in New York state jails. One of the things that I found really compelling about It's Up to Us and speaking to Mike was that he's not just this organizer who kind of on his own seemingly came up with this flash mob ethnographic hybrid with oral history model of organizing people around mass incarceration uh, by going down to the buses and recording people's stories and bringing it back to them. And the whole thing is very fascinating. But also he personally has experience with not only being incarcerated, but experiences with incredible brutality, isolation, um, while experiencing mental health issues. Do you want to share, like, what's your, like, personal connection to, to mass incarceration? Uh, yeah, I mean, my personal connection is basically, like, when I was, uh, you know, I guess, 2021, you know, and I, I, you know, I basically was, uh, arrested, uh, you know, with a gun charge, basically. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, my, my probation was violated, uh, you know, a few years later and I was, you know, I was incarcerated for a few years and, you know, and basically like, you know, I also had issues with mental health, which is kind of like a big, uh, a big problem you know you know the mental health the, like men, prisons and jails are becoming like the new psychiatric institutions basically because they're you know they're putting you know they're pe- putting people with mental mental health diagnoses in in the prisons and, and and because they don't know what else to do basically and you know and and you know putting you know we've spoken to people with you know mental health problems that are that are, you know, in SHU and that's just unfathomable to put, to put someone, you know, that's going, you know, that's going through psychosis or going through depression or, or, or whatnot kind of in a, in a, in a SHU. And that's kind of what happened to me. I, I, I was actually going through psychosis and I, you know, I was put into, uh, I, you know, I actually was, you know, assaulted by the COs at one point for refusing to eat my food at Lakeview at the shock program. And I was put into the SHU and basically left there, you know, with food that was fucked with, excuse my language, um, with, um, you know, without being able to take a shower, you know, and that was for about 30 or 40 days before I was released into like, um, a medium correctional, a medium, uh, a medium correctional facility, um, and basically then moved into a, a maximum. Uh, but, you know, and this is on a one to three. So, so, so I, so I kind of have an idea, you know, what people have to go through and kind of what it's like to be kind of assaulted without, you know, without provocation and to, uh, you know, I, I know that these things go on firsthand, you know, through firsthand experience, not only through the stories that people tell me. So it's not hard for me to believe people when they tell me these stories. On March 23rd of this year, Reuven Blau and Rosa Goldenson published a piece in The City, a local newspaper, about Rikers inmates being pepper sprayed for demanding medical care. The first inmate I spoke to at Rikers for this episode was Talbert Brown. Talbert is 55 years old, asthmatic, diabetes, and one of the eight inmates pepper sprayed that day awaiting to enter the clinic. Talbert has been awaiting trial on a drug charge since February 2018. 
to get a better sense of his story, I spoke to his wife, Tadinia, at length. These are her words. I met my husband in 2010, and um, we've been together ever since then. Um, how the Rikers Island thing wound up, came about, was on um, the cops. We had a search warrant for the building, but not for my apartment. And mm-hmm. they found they found, you know, drugs in there and stuff, but they weren't supposed to enter my apartment without no search warrant. They came in, it was February 8, February 28, 2018, 6 o'clock in the morning. It was me, his sister, his, um, his brother-in-law, his nephew, and his little niece. We was all sleeping in the house. This was on 901 Decap Avenue and on Bedstock. The cops came in, raided the apartment. They woke us up. They said, um, put your hands up. They didn't show no such one. I asked what's the problem. They was there. We have, um, they said we have such one. I asked to see it. They said they, first they lied said they had it. Then they said they didn't have it. Then they said it was in the van. When I got the search warrant, it was presented for the building, not my apartment. My husband had the, one of the officers that worked for the 79th Precinct. He said he worked for the narcotics team. He said that um, he, my, um, he told my husband to tell me that he threatened him and said, if he don't take the weight, that I'm going to go to jail, you know, if it was in my apartment. But, yeah, I violated because I didn't come, yeah, I came without no search warrant. And during this whole time, ever since he's been incarcerated, it's been headache for me. It's been headache. I've been having Back for um not bad problems. I have I'm asthmatic. I have seizures. I have low blood pressure, and um, that's about it. It's been hard because I've been going back and forth, back and forth up there at this time because this this coronavirus thing. And ever since I've been home, it's just like been busy. Days I cry, days I pray to God for him to come home. It's been real hard because he's the only one on all my paperwork, and I have nobody but him. Just like he have nobody but me, and um, um, it's been really, it's been a headache, you know. Um, I divorced my mom Thursday last Thursday, and I'm fear that I'm not. I don't want to lose my husband due to this coronavirus situation. It's been real hectic, so it's like. This officer that did that, he ain't got no remorse. You know, they damaged, I mean, when I say they literally damaged my apartment without presenting it to me, they had the door come in and sniff, and I mean, they really raided my apartment bad. And I went from, um, I left from DCAP on April 2019 and went to a shelter, and God bless me with. You know, in the shelter, they helped me with the counseling. I'm going to therapy. I'm still going to therapy for this because he's not home and I'm scared. And it's been a toll on me, you know, trying to deal with the the, the um, bills, trying to deal with him, trying to even take care of myself. I have heart problems. That's I left out some, so I have heart problems. I have a leakage, a valve that's in my heart that's leaking and busted, and I'm scared for that, too. So it's been real hard. It's been so hard. And um, I fear myself that I might not wake up in the morning, but 
I don't want to jinx that on myself. You know, I'm trying to, I know God is helping to keep me up, you know, but who knows when it's going to be my time. But I don't want it to be like that. Me losing him and him losing me because he's all I got. And it, I cry in the morning. Sometimes I cry at night because it's so hard. It's difficult. It's been a lot. It's been too much. And I'm scared. I'm real scared. And they don't do their job in there. They don't. They don't like them. They don't like none of these inmates in there. So I'm not going to stand my let nothing happen to mine. I just want them out. They just need to come out. And the reason why I want people to hear this and be my for for them to hear us, we don't mind, is because we want to let these people know what's going on in AMKC and on Rikers Island. It's not like Governor Cuomo made the body don't know. They know what's going on. They just left them alone in there. They can do it whatever outside. Understanding. Get the word out that if anybody has family in there, just be alert because it's not worth going to the graveyard where I've been with my mom. It's not worth going to the graveyard where some of the common in the block they don't care. They're not doing their job. My husband's at high risk because he's at high risk of anything attack him and go to him. He's gone. I'm not going to allow that. So my thing is this. Either they let them out or they're going to do people, loved ones, that see their loved ones in there be carried on the body bag. And I'm not going to stand for it. I think Governor, Governor Cuomo made the me to jump back and do what they said they want to do to release these inmates to come home to their loved ones before it's too late. There were a lot of challenging things about recording this episode, one of which is if you've been a listener for the last several weeks, you might notice that I generally record on Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. That's because I have five kids at home, and my mother, who lives with us, is a palliative care nurse practitioner um, dealing with end-of-life patients, practicing telemedicine. And Thursdays and weekends are the only days that she has off and is able to distract them for the hour or so it takes to record an episode. That's possible, though, to arrange when somebody's an academic, staying at home, or a journalist. It's not as possible when you're interviewing somebody who's incarcerated on Rikers Island. So on Monday, when I received the first phone call and I saw Rikers Island coming up on my caller ID, I knew that I had to take the call. And I had just happened to buy my kids cupcakes, and they're fighting over some red velvet cupcakes. I got myself barricaded in the bathroom, um, trying to capture the audio. And that's why you might notice that the sound is not as crystal clear as some of the other interviews that we had. And, you know, maybe my questions weren't fully together, but it's just this image of myself scrambling on top of the toilet, pressing my head, my head to the phone, trying to hear the story of Talbert, of another inmate named Mike, who describes having only one lung and being afraid of catching COVID-19. It's these interstitial moments of our everyday trying to survive and trying to work and trying to get our stories told that I think captures what it means to live through this pandemic right now. My day is hectic because, you know, every day um, I wake up with the fear of something might go wrong and I won't be able to see my wife enough. And, you know, that bothering me, you know. I'm supposed to be a containee. You know, I'm not a containee because of 
So Monday, April 27th, I get a call from Tadinia Talbert's wife. And she puts me on a conference call with Talbert and Rikers. Initially, I was just set to interview him. But as we complete the interview, I'm telling him, you know, if anybody else wants to share their story, thinking that, you know, they would call me back at a different time and I, I would work to record those people's stories. But instead, he turns in that moment and you'll hear some of the ambient noise of him calling people over. And a line starts to form on his unit with back-to-back people who want to share their stories. So the first person that you're going to hear from is Mike. Mike is 30 years old with one lung due to gun violence and asthma. Um, I, I have asthma and um, I just, I'm just scared for my life. And I got one lung. And you, how do you have one lung? I have a good shot. Um, and has do you have an attorney that has requested an early release date for you? I have my attorney that has, uh, they, they, they're doing the process right now. Uh, you have one minute left. He said he's willing to let me go if he see my medical record, so they're doing the process now. Um, I hear on I hear on the recording we got one minute left. Is there anything that you want people to know about what else you're experiencing right now? Um, they just, uh, they, they're not giving us no mass. Um, they basically, uh, just neglect us. Um, there's more than 25 people here. It's about 45 people in this in this dome area, mm-hmm. and they just mix it up. Um, yeah, they bring different people here that that was ready, like they that so-called had the uh, COVID-19, and mixing them up with the uh, the population. Are they letting anyone get tested? Uh, yeah, they they test people, and some of the people that get tested. Don't get they don't get they the results. They test them and don't get their results, and they still put them in population. They get the results later. Mm-hmm. Phone calls are now free in the jail, but they're time limited. And he's rapidly trying to explain the situation. While he's talking and he's getting faster and faster, we notice there's only one minute left. Some time goes by. He says that he's going to call me back. Goodbye. Uh, I would like to add that um. The, the the parolees, there's people in here with parole, just parole cases, mm-hmm. and they just they they not releasing them. That's a big a big factor on the parole. It's just the parole is just a violation, and people just stuck here because it's because of the parole. They can't bail out. They can't do anything. They just stuck. Are they giving any? What's the reason that they're giving for for not releasing them? There's no there's no no reason because because you know the COVID nineteen stopped the court the court dates and um people just stuck here. They can't bail out. They can't do anything because they're parole. And if parole left the warrant, a lot of people will be released to their family and uh, be safe. And there's a lot of older people that are here, too, on parole that have no cases on Rackers Island. They're just here for the parole. And parole, basically, when you get a parole violation, you go, uh, you get a parole violation, you go upstate and do the time. 
So say say if you get called for uh to get get police contact and uh you got three years on parole, they give you a violation for a year, like twelve months. And then you go back upstate and do twelve months and come home. Just because you called police contact. But there's a lot of people in here with parole violations and they just stuck here and they not they can't do nothing. And I'm just scared for my life, so I just stay I stay in my cell. Stay far away from people. I'm scared to even get on the phone right now. Oh, no, I'm by myself in the cell. But I have to come out to, to eat. I have to come out to take a shower. And, you know, you have to interact with people. We have to share the same shower. We have to share the same, uh, the way we eat out, we have to share the same. Watch TV is, is like a little, it's real little, small. They, they actually is not, uh, people is actually scared to even tell them that he's sick. So when we see, we, we, we'll say something. The inmate to tell the COs that this person is sick because he keeps coughing and sneezing. And, mm-hmm. and they uh, sometimes they move them, sometimes they don't. They just they labeled us uh, saying that we uh, basically that we can't even get them. Yeah, we isolated. Mm-hmm. Saying that we all we all have it, but we don't know. We carry it that we don't even know that we got it. And they didn't even touch everybody in the house. I I feel like because they just I don't know because we're incarcerated, we treat us like animals. They 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 we do everything last with us. And I just, it's not fair. And what do you think should should happen in addition to testing? I, I think uh, they should give us more tests. I feel like they should test the, the inmates um, as high risk first, and then uh, and um, honestly, I think we should let us go to our families so we won't catch anything. And um, people that's not a flavor, people that that go to court, and um, I just that just need to be with their families because a lot of people' families are dying in the head as well. And, and and they they worry. Mm-hmm. They need to be with their family. So I thought two people here, family members died, and and there's nothing they could do about it. Another thing that was really challenging while recording this episode is almost every single person that I spoke to, they started off their story by listing off their medical conditions. I have diabetes. I have asthma. I have high blood pressure, and it was just so difficult because on one hand I have on my ear. A lot of them complained about not having legal representation, so I worked with the legal aid to try to connect them to services, or if they ever, if they had an attorney but they weren't responsive, um, to try to track them down with the resources that we have and um, put in for an early release, or depend, you know, depended on the case. And one of the attorneys that I spoke to, not of an inmate that was interviewed for this episode, said, "You know what? Everybody thinks this is a get out of jail free card. Murderers think that they could come home." Now everybody got asthma. And there's so many levels of disrespect in that comment. But what I want to point to is that how horrifying it is to me that anybody feels the need to justify their reasons for wanting to be able to survive this pandemic. Rikers Island currently has almost nine times the rate of infection as the rest of New York City, even while we're at the epicenter. The Legal Aid Society has been collecting this data, and you'll see in the show notes that I'll link to the chart showing the exponential rates of community transmission within New York City jails relative to the rest of the population. Everybody wants to come home. Free them all. Good afternoon. I'm Derek McCullough. Um, I'm 53 years old. I'm a chronic asthmatic and also have high blood pressure. 
I'm a parole violator who was violated on a misdemeanor charge and parole spit me right back to incarceration all over again. And I'm a high risk to catch COVID-19. I've been back and forth um, reporting and um, putting in for sick call. I've been a sick call within the last 45 days at least seven times, complaining about asthma and pain. And I'm just not getting the proper... Um, medical attention that I'm entitled to. And as well, I'm having issues with parole as well to where they're not even doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they put me down for having uh, final hearings, which I've never had. And I just finally got a hold of, a, of an attorney. They just assigned me an attorney after uh, a month and a half of waiting, telling me that my final hearing has been done, and then I just received the paper state that it's been a reschedule. So how if it was done, how are we now talking about it's a rescheduling? And that's all in addition to me supposed to be put on a list because I'm 53 years old with a chronic asthmatic and I have high blood pressure, hypertension. I have just got a chance to speak to a parole uh, attorney two days ago, and I have to call her back Wednesday to find out what's the situation. All right. Is there anything else that you would like people or listeners to hear? No, that's it. Thank you very much. Here's the next guy. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. The consensus among everyone I spoke to was fear. Fear of the virus of the COs or correctional officers who are thought to be vectors of infection, of the flux of people who continue to cycle into the island, some of whom are suspected by other inmates of having COVID-19. There were some contradictory reports about personal protective equipment or PPE. The CEOs, the CEOs were seen fully outfitted. Some said they didn't have enough masks. Other inmates felt that while masks were provided, not everyone was compliant, putting them all at risk, especially since physical distancing is impossible with the amount of people communally eating, showering, and in the day room. The next person you're going to hear is Alfred Cabral, an inmate who states that he contracted and tested positive for COVID-19 while at Rikers Island. My name is uh, Alfred Cabral. Uh, that's C-A-B-R-A-L. I already tested positive for the coronavirus. I was quarantined for 14 days in inhumane environments where they was bringing us cold food, they wasn't feeding us, they brought us spoiled milk. They, they brought me, after being quarantined, they put me back in the same place, in the same building where I contracted the virus. I did not come to Rikers Island with the virus, I contracted it here. And they put me back in that same house where I contracted the virus. Um, I have asthma, and I'm still sitting here, they haven't released me. So... Is there anything else that you would like people to know about your case or what you're seeing or experiencing in Rikers right now? Um, just the fact that they're really not taking the precautionary measures to make sure that we don't, I don't catch the, the, the virus again. I already caught it once. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm asymptomatic. I tested positive. Um, there's new people coming in and out of Rikers Island every day as we speak where they're coming out from the streets and who's to say that I can, I can get sick again, like I can get sick even way more worse than what I was in the first place, you know? No, that's about it. I, I figured that they was letting people go when they when they tested positive for the um, COVID-19. And, and if you had asthma, they were, they were letting people go, but they haven't let me go. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Like. All right. What's that? Everybody's next? Oh. The second thing that I found really challenging was 
how grateful people were that I took the time to listen to their story. And a part of me just wonders, should they be grateful at all? Will it be enough to document people's stories? Will that push, will that create enough evidence to leverage material that will force the governor, Governor Andrew Cuomo or New York City Mayor de Blasio to free these prisoners and to give them a fighting chance to survive this pandemic? Will suffering be enough to compel our society to to protect those who are most vulnerable? Or will it just be another tragedy for us to feel bad for those other people? You know, I decided to push forward because I feel like it's important to do what we can. And in my role as the director of this podcast and the producer of this podcast, you know, what I can do is I can give them a mic and I can try to get their story out. But I feel like that only matters insofar as that we fight to free the prisoners that are currently incarcerated on Rikers Island. Okay, well, my name is Nicole James, and I would like to share my story about my husband, Philip James. He was um, arrested in our home October 10th, 2018. They came in and they busted in the door, never showed the warrant. Um, Upon busting upon my house, they found, well, they found the gun. Actually, he, he was running, and he stayed, and they thought they found the gun inside of our bedroom. As, and um, when he went to, you know, he got arrested, so he let them know that the gun was his because he said they was threatening to come back to take the kids or whatever. So he was scared, so they arrested him with the gun. So as upon getting arrested, his bail was set at $200,000. Bell, $150,000 bond. And so it's like, that's the case. So we just kept going back and forth the case. Court, the lady, she went, appeared for the first three or four times. After that, she was not appearing. They were saying different lawyers from the Legal Aid Society, different lawyers. And each time it'd be adjourned, it'd be adjourned, it'd be adjourned. The prosecution would say they wasn't ready, they wasn't ready, they wasn't ready, they wasn't ready, I guess, because. She wasn't um, a parent. So time like this, the kids just keep on adjourning it and adjourning it and adjourning it and adjourning it. So, um, you know, that's getting a little frustrating. So I just said, it would be all right. But they was trying to offer him like eight and five, like eight years to five, like 13 years for a, a, a handgun because they said it was loaded. And yes, he had a prior felony, but the last felony he had was in 2008. 18. Yes, he got arrested for, not he never got arrested for a felony. He got arrested for the sale of marijuana, you know, uh, smoking marijuana, um, going up upstate. He was boosting out of a store. He had to pay a fine for that. And, um, but I was, it was upstate. I can't think of the place where it was at. So that, but he never had any major things that he was, um, he had, he had caught another felony. So I'm like, I don't understand the time that they, the time that they trying to give him for the, for the, you know, the loaded gun, which was in the house. And they also charged him for saying that the gun was outside of his home, which that's not true. The gun was actually inside of the home. Like I said, um, the bell is just so high and um, it's crazy. So upon being in there, you know, they started with the COVID-19, like a man, his name was, his name is Ishmael Lugo. He was like right next to my husband. He had COVID-19. So they took him out 
They never brought them back in. And it's no social distance in there. My husband said it's like they beds is like three three feet apart. You know, they all share the shower. I think he said it's like twenty five to thirty of them in there. Um, they all share uh one um mill room or uh, what they call that. I forget I call it the mill room. I forgot what else name they call it. And so it's like it's really no social distance and everyone uses phones, yes they gave them masks. He said, but, you know, nobody really wears the mask. He said, some of the officers in there wear that mask. Some don't. So it's like, I'm really afraid. And he also is a 53-year-old man, so it's not like he's young or anything like that. So I'm afraid with this COVID-19. You know, I know he's he's been charged with it and not been found guilty. So, you know, I don't want him to come home to me in a body bag. For him to come in, come home, as he left out, you know. So that's the story. He had we. He has an eight-year-old daughter. She's she's my stepdaughter. We have an eight-year-old daughter. We have a five-year-old. I mean, an eight-year-old grandson. His his daughter. They both is emotionally mostly um, upset about it. It's like they their emotions is all over the place. They cry. His daughter. She just lost her mom. So she lost her mom in May of 2018. Then her dad got arrested in October of 2018. It's like it's been a struggle while her. She's struggling in school. Chance is struggling in school. It's like there's so much emotions. Then I have an 18-year-old. He's struggling with his emotions because Phil was the only father figure that he had. So it's been so much. He didn't even want to, he didn't even attend his high school graduation last year. Because he said that Mr. Phil, he called him Mr. Phil, wasn't here. So, you know, it's so much. Even me as being his wife is so much. So that's the story. And that's it for today's episode. This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman of the We Be Imagining Podcast. Please subscribe, rate us, review us. Come on, Apple. Hit us up. We want to hear from you. Um, you can reach us at webeimagining at gmail.com. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks.